0: Episode nine, just once in his whole life, he had held in his hands unmistakable documentary proof of the falsification of an historical fact. And on that occasion, Smith screamed the shrewish voice from the telescreen. 6079, Smith, W. Yes, you. Bend lower, please. You can do better than that. You're not trying. Lower, please. That's better, comrade. Now, stand at ease, the whole squad, and watch me. A sudden hot sweat had broken out all over Winston's body. His face remained completely inscrutable. Never show dismay, never show resentment. A single flicker of the eyes could give you away. He stood watching while the instructress raised her arms above her head and one could not say gracefully, but with remarkable neatness and efficiency, bent over and tucked the first joint of her fingers under her toes. There, comrades, that's how I want to see you doing it. Watch me again. I'm thirty-nine and I've had four children. Now look! You see? My knees aren't bent. You can all do it if you want to, she added as she straightened herself up. Anyone under 45 is perfectly capable of touching his toes. We don't all have the privilege of fighting in the front line, but at least we can all keep fit. Remember our boys on the Malabar front, and the sailors in the floating fortress? Just think what they have to put up with. Now try again. That's better, comrade. That's much better, she added encouragingly, as Winston with a violent lunge, succeeded in touching his toes, with knees unbent, for the first time in several years. End of chapter three. Chapter four. With the deep, unconscious sigh, which not even the nearness of the telescreen could prevent him from uttering when his day's work started, Winston pulled the speak right toward him, blew the dust from its mouthpiece, and put on his spectacles. Then he unrolled and clipped together four small cylinders of paper, which had already flopped out of the pneumatic tube on the right-hand side of his desk. In the walls of the cubicle, there were three orifices. To the right of the speak right, a small pneumatic tube for written messages. To the left, A larger one for newspapers, and in the side wall, within easy reach of Winston's arm, a large oblong slit protected by a wire grating. This last was for the disposal of waste paper. Similar slits existed in thousands or tens of thousands throughout the building, not only in every room, but at short intervals in every corridor. For some reason, they were nicknamed memory holes. When one knew that any document was due for destruction, or even when one saw a scrap of waste paper lying about, it was an automatic action to lift the flap of the nearest memory hole and drop it in, whereupon it would be whirled away on a current of warm air to the enormous furnaces which were hidden somewhere in the recesses of the building. Winston examined the four slips of paper which he had unrolled. Each contained a message of only one or two lines in the abbreviated jargon, not actually Newspeak, but consisting largely of Newspeak words, which was used in the ministry for internal purposes. They ran Times seventeen point three point eight four BB speech Malreported Africa rectify Times nineteen point twelve point eight three forecasts three YP fourth quarter, 83 misprints verify, current issue. Times 14.2.84, many plenty malquoted chocolate, rectify. Times 3.12.83, reporting BB day order, double splun goods, refs, unpersons, rewrite, full wise, up sub, anti filing. With a faint feeling of satisfaction, Winston laid the fourth message aside. It was an intricate and responsible job and had better be dealt with last. The other three were routine matters, though the second one would probably mean some tedious wading through lists of figures. Winston dialed back numbers on the telescreen and called for the appropriate issues of the times, which slid out of the pneumatic tube after only a few minutes delay the messages he had received referred to articles or news items which for one reason or another it was thought necessary to alter, or as the official phrase had it, to rectify. For example, it appeared from the times of the 17th of March that Big Brother, in his speech of the previous day, had predicted that the South Indian Front would remain quiet, but that a Eurasian offensive would shortly be launched in North Africa. As it happened, the Eurasian higher command had launched its offensive in South India and left North Africa alone. It was therefore necessary to rewrite a paragraph of Big Brother's speech in such a way as to make him predict the thing that had actually happened. Or again, the Times of the 19th of December had published the official forecast of the output of various classes of consumption goods in the fourth quarter of 1983 which was also the sixth quarter of the ninth three-year plan. Today's issue contained a statement of the actual output from which it appeared that the forecasts were in every instance grossly wrong. Winston's job was to rectify the original figures by making them agree with the later ones. As for the third message, it referred to a very simple error which could be set right in a couple of minutes. As short a time ago as February, the Ministry of Plenty had issued a promise, a categorical pledge were the official words, that there would be no reduction of the chocolate ration during 1984. Actually, as Winston was aware, the chocolate ration was to be reduced from 30 grams to 20 at the end of the present week. All that was needed was to substitute for the original promise a warning that it would probably be necessary to reduce the ration at some time in April. As soon as Winston had dealt with each of the messages, he clipped his speak-written corrections to the appropriate copy of the times and pushed them into the pneumatic tube. Then, with a movement which was as nearly as possible unconscious, he crumpled the original message and any notes that he himself had made and dropped them into the memory hole to be devoured by the flame. What happened in the unseen labyrinth to which the pneumatic tubes led, he did not know in detail, but he did know in general terms. As soon as all the corrections, which happened to be necessary in any particular number of the times had been assembled and collated, that number would be reprinted, the original copy destroyed, and the corrected copy placed in the files in its stead. This process of continuous alteration was applied not only to newspapers, but to books, periodicals, pamphlets, posters, leaflets, films, soundtracks, cartoons, photographs, to every kind of literature or documentation which might conceivably hold any political or ideological significance. Day by day and almost minute by minute, the past was brought up to date. In this way, every prediction made by the party could be shown by documentary evidence to have been correct. Nor was any item of news or any expression of opinion which conflicted with the needs of the moment ever allowed to remain on record. All history was a palimpsest, scraped clean and re-inscribed exactly as often as was necessary in no case would it have been possible once the deed was done to prove that any falsification had taken place. The largest section of the records department, far larger than the one on which Winston worked, consisted simply of persons whose duty it was to track down and collect all copies of books, newspapers, and other documents which had been superseded and were due for destruction. A number of the times which might, because of changes in political alignment or mistaken prophecies uttered by Big Brother, have been rewritten a dozen times, still stood on the files bearing its original date, and no other copy existed to contradict it. Books also were recalled and rewritten again and again, and were invariably reissued without any admission that any alteration had been made even the written instructions which Winston received and which he invariably got rid of as soon as he had dealt with them never stated or implied that an act of forgery was to be committed always the reference was to slips errors misprints or misquotations which it was necessary to put right in the interests of accuracy but actually he thought, as he readjusted the Ministry of Plenty's figures, it was not even forgery. It was merely the substitution of one piece of nonsense for another. Most of the material that you were dealing with had no connection with anything in the real world, not even the kind of connection that is contained in a direct lie statistics were just as much a fantasy in their original version as in their rectified version. A great deal of the time, you were expected to make them up out of your head. For example, the Ministry of Plenty's forecast had estimated the output of boots for the quarter at 145 million pairs. The actual output was given as 62 millions. Winston, however, in rewriting the forecast, marked the figure down to 57 millions so as to allow for the usual claim that the quota had been over-fulfilled. In any case, 62 millions was no nearer the truth than 57 millions, or than 145 millions. Very likely, no boots had been produced at all. Likelier still, nobody knew how many had been produced, much less cared, All one knew was that every quarter, astronomical numbers of boots were produced on paper while perhaps half the population of Oceania went barefoot. And so it was with every class of recorded fact, great or small, everything faded away into a shadow world in which, finally, even the date of the year had become uncertain.